Welcome to Richard Ellis Talks with Richard Ellis. Thanks for allowing us to share this time with you. Honestly, it's our favorite time of the day where we get to hang out together and talk about how the truth of God's Word can make a huge difference in your life. And that's what we're going to hear from Richard in a way that only he can do with words of hope, insight, and humor. You may be stuck in traffic or stuck in life. Either way, today's message is going to help get you on the right track as you learn how much God loves you right where you are. So let's get right into today's talk. Here's Richard Ellis. The title of today's message is Passion Fruit. And if you've ever sat down and visited with me one-on-one, I don't know that I always ask this question, but through the years, I usually at some point in the conversation ask somebody, what is your passion? What is it that keeps you awake at night? What is it that just makes your heart race? What is it that if you couldn't do any more, you know, you just might as well shoot me kind of thing? There's all kind of stuff that we get passionate about and a lot of focus, a lot of energy. One of the basic ways to find out what your passion is, is to look in your checkbook. Because your passion, I could pretty much tell you what your passion is by just going through your bank statement. And sooner or later, it'll ping, it'll surface, it'll show up, and you'll see a recurring theme. If your passion is carpentry, you're going to find unopened tools in the garage of that person. Whole packages sealed of screwdrivers and, you know, wrenches, things of that nature. Because you just see stuff, you go, wow, that'd be so cool to have that. We're not going to use it, but we have that. For some people, women like have shoes are a passion, and we won't explore that today. Turn to James chapter 1. Let's start with one of these. Passion fruit. There's one kind of passion that the fruit of which is not very desirable. And I'm going to read you just a few verses here out of James chapter 1. And James chapter 1, let's jump in at verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it brings birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. There's a certain kind of passion that's fruit is death. And I used to read this and I think, you know, what does that mean? Because I know plenty of people, myself included, who have, you know, passions get out of control or something. You get too emotional under the definition of passion is even anger, just rage. You know, you get too passionate. There are crimes of passion even. And people do stupid things, just nuts. They go nuts and people get hurt, people die. And literally there, it can end in physical death. But in a lot of these conversations through the years that I have with people, you discover that death isn't always physical death. Sometimes a relationship literally dies. And when you sit down with men and women who, you know, adultery or somebody's cheated on somebody and it all seemed fun at the time, but the end of it, when you track it and listen to them and talk it all the way through, something died. A relationship with children dies. A relationship with an ex-husband, an ex-wife dies. Friends, relationship with friends that you used to have, just bam, like that. The ties are severed, people go their separate ways, and it's over. Literally, the fruit of your passion, passion fruit in the wrong kind of passion, is disastrous. And I hesitate sometimes to even comment on these things or bring these things up. People that listen say, well, you're bringing up my past. You know what? I may be bringing up your past, my past, for the sake of someone else's future. 
and I don't recommend you going on blabbing all your stories and digging up the past, but sometimes you need to tell your story for the sake of someone else who's on the verge of repeating that story and getting themselves into a whole lot of trouble and where this thing runs its course and they end up experiencing death in some way. Now, sometimes it literally does end up in physical death and that's the ultimate nightmare where this thing takes its course. So beware of that kind of passion fruit. Second one I wanna talk to you about, and let's go to Luke six while you're turning to that. Let me explain this one. There are certain kinds of passion that lead to great things. There are people who are passionate about sports, some kind of sport maybe. You know, you say, well, what's the difference in having passion about a sport? What's the difference in passion and obsession? It's being able to make a living at it. That's the distinction. Because if you're a passionate person and you ride and ride and ride and you win the Tour de France, everybody goes, oh, wow, he's committed, dedicated. But if you ride, ride, ride and you win nothing, you're obsessed. Have you ever noticed that? If you want to get all caught up in something, as long as you succeed at it in the world's eyes, they'll allow for anything. It might even destroy your family, but man, as long as you accomplish something, we'll allow for whatever it took to get there, right? And you talk to corporate America, people in business, and there's a strange distinction. People who are passionate about their work, they go to work, they serve, they make a lot of money, the company grows, the stock goes through the roof, whatever it is you could trace your passion to, the corporate world may say, good job. You may get all the awards and accolades, but sometimes if you go tracking that person, anybody who is overly passionate and successful in the world sometimes is a disaster personally. And you start poking around and say, you know what? Talk to their kids. Let me ask you kids, how do you feel about mom or dad's passion here and how successful they are? You know what? I hate his job. I hate with it. I never see him. They're gone. And all of a sudden there's an imbalance. If your passion is a productive kind of passion, something that is gonna achieve something in God's eyes is worthwhile. You don't have to lose your family over your passion. There can be some balance. And sometimes you go along and you get to a point and they say, well, here's another promotion. Here's something else you can do. And you say, you know what? I got another passion that trumps this passion. I believe I'll pass. And I'm gonna be with my kids. I'm gonna be with my wife. I'm gonna have a life. And somewhere along the way, great sacrifices are made and we throw accolades on people, sometimes money to keep them going. And you have to have balance. Now, personally, I think the safest way to have passion that produces the right kind of fruit is to make sure that whatever you are pursuing in the end brings more glory to God than yourself. Is what you're doing, is how you're living, is what you are pouring your life into, is it ultimately glorifying God in the way your family looks, the way you run your business, all aspects of it, is he getting the glory or in the final analysis, is there some disaster mixed with it and really people end up looking at you. You say, but I want somebody to know me for my passion. I want some recognition. Then think about that. If it's more about me or if it's more about you than it is about him, there's a problem somewhere. It doesn't mean that people can't appreciate you. People can't say, wow, great job. And that you have to always over-spiritualize, oh, it's not me, it's all Jesus. You know what? He uses people. So don't be falsely humble in your, you know, say thank you. If somebody comes to me and says, man, I really enjoy the way you speak. You know what I say? Wow, thank you. I really enjoy doing it. That's okay. I'm passionate about what I do. It's okay for you to be passionate about what you do but be sure that you're pointing the glory some other place. Now let's read some of these verses. Luke 6, 43 and following. 
For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Whoever you are, whatever you are passionate about, based on this, if it's really good, it's going to be clear to everyone that it's good. And sooner or later, what you are passionate about is going to come out of your mouth. You will speak of whatever you are passionate about sooner or later. Now, I'm going to ask you to think about what you talk about. You say, well, I don't say much. Then it ought to be easier for you to figure out. You say, well, get right down to it. I meet anybody, man, I am pulling out the phone or the whatever slideshow. I'm showing people pictures of my grandkids. I'm passionate about my grandkids. Not my kids, but my grandkids. I'm passionate about them. And you say, well, what are you going to tell me now? That's wrong. You know what? If your grandkids are getting more airtime than Jesus, you got a problem. Now that sounds un-American, right? Well, I'm passionate about my job and I'm passionate about you know, all these things. You know what? If you are passionate about Jesus and your relationship with him and the promise of eternal life and you have abundant life, they're not gonna be able to shut you up sooner or later. And it's almost irritating to me when I get around someone who's passionate about him. Because when I'm not in a good place and I'm not passionate, then they start going, I'm like, dude, just chill. You know, okay, enough already on the Jesus thing. Because if my heart's not right, I don't want to hear it. Ever been around that person? The problem is we are not that person. You say, well, you don't want to be obnoxious. You know what? No one else is obnoxious when they're passionate about their passion. Why is it all of a sudden we are when we are about Jesus? Go to Luke chapter 13, a few pages over. Verse 6. He also spoke this parable. This is Jesus telling this parable. And this one is amazing. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? I'm done. I've been out here three years. Boom, boom, boom. There's no figs. Get rid of this tree. But look at this. But he answered and said to him, sir, Let it alone this year also, give me one more year, until I dig around it, and the King James Version says, dung it. I love the King James every once in a while. (laughs) Let me dig around this tree and dung it. Or as the New King James, you may have something something to fertilize it, which is not near as effective. (laughs) And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. That's mercy. But let me tell you what happens when you don't produce fruit. God comes along with manure. And if you're tired of all the stuff piled around your trunk, bear some fruit and get to where that's not necessary. I'm trying to put this in nice PG-13 terms, but if you're tired of all the whatever you got around the base of your tree, then do something. You say, well, that's in the Bible, isn't it? Yeah, it's right there, dung it. And dung happens, I'm telling you. Sooner or later, (laughs) sooner or later, God looks at you and says, you know what, I'm about done. But the keeper says, let's give it one more shot. Here's what we got to resort to. We're going to start piling crap around the bottom of this tree. Have you noticed that happening in your life? Is it starting to smell pretty horrible lately? 
it turns out that the worst thing in the world is the best thing. So God starts piling this junk around the base of your tree to what? Get you to bear fruit, get you to get passionate, get you to the place where something triggers something inside of you says, something's got to change. I got to live. I got to do what he wants me to do. And sometimes it takes a lot of manure, a lot of dung to get you moving. Now, one of the things that scares me about this is that I think there is a point where after being patient, come and check in your tree, dunging it, that God says, you know what? This is my child. My child is not gonna bear any fruit. There is no passion. The only fruit that's being produced is horrible consequences. They're out of here. And I promise you, as sure as I'm standing here, I believe we will get to heaven and discover that people got an early ticket home because they would not get with the program. You say you're insinuating that God can take people out, can just kill people, take them home. Absolutely. There's biblical precedent for it. You say, well, that's scary. It should be scary. This is not a game. You are not a passenger on a planet going nowhere. There should be some purpose, some meaning. You ought to stop at some point and go, okay, what am I doing here? So you got a great job, good for you. So you can pay your bills, good for you. So you can buy a few things for yourself and maybe, maybe for somebody else, good for you. But what else is there? So your car's nicer than someone else's, your house is bigger, whatever you can come up with. There's got to be more than that. Something's got to shake you at the foundation of your life where you say, this is what I was made to do. And I get to do it. Go to John chapter four. Now, I almost hate to use Jesus as an example because he had the distinct advantage of being God, you know, and that's kind of trumps everything. But part of what this bizarre mix of God and a man and man, God, this thing that he was and is, it's strange. And yet somehow the man side of him had to every day do what he expects us to do and that's submit to the father's will. If you've got a reason for being alive, and in his case was living and dying and being buried and raised from the dead, you gotta move toward that. You've gotta live that out. And he had to check in all the time. He was in constant communication with the Father, making sure that he wasn't just doing his thing, he was doing what the Father saw, what the Father wanted, and had to find out what that was. That was part of their deal while he was here. And it's the same thing with us. You have to check in, you have to spend time I cannot go very long without being in the scriptures. You've got to keep talking to the Father. You've got to listen to him or you will get so off track. You'll be chasing crazy stuff. Listen to Jesus here. Again, in John chapter four, and let's jump in at verse 33. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's food to me. Do you want to do the will of him who sent you and finish his work more than you want food? Why do you think we fast? What's the point of fasting? It's to get to a place where you're saying, God, by myself without fasting, I don't want you. I don't want your will. I clearly can demonstrate I want to do what I want to do. Leave me alone. I got my ticket. You're screwing my life up. It's painful, it's hard, it's sacrificial. I don't wanna do that anymore. So we say, you know what? In the natural, I will not submit to God's will. So when you fast, you say, look God, I'm trying here. I have to have a category where I want you and your will more than I want food itself. That's how passionate I am about you. Anybody can quit eating. Not eating for the right reason is a whole nother deal, being passionate about him. 
And Jesus says to him, hey, my food is to do his will. That trumps even physical food. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. I get the privilege of reaping. It's a very weird piece of the deal. I sit down with people and share the gospel with them and they'll be saved. I see them pray right there, they become Christians. And inadvertently, I try almost always to say, please tell me of someone you know that has been praying for you, your mom, your dad, a sister, a brother, a friend. Let's identify because I didn't do this by myself. I didn't get to do this. This is a collective effort. And some of you say, well, it's not fair. I'm out here working. I'm out here telling my story. I'm out here showing my pictures of Jesus. And I don't ever get to see anybody saved. I don't get in on the harvest. Don't be discouraged. It takes all of us. And you may plow that field. You may sow that seed in somebody else. But you know what? God knows what's going on. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this one is very personal to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15 and following. This is Paul writing... You'd have to read the previous verses. I don't have time to get into all this. He says, but I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And my prayer for you is that you will discover what it is that God put you on the planet for, what he made you to do, why you are here, what your gift is, what it is that he has impassioned you with, that you say, God, this is my groove, this is my deal, this is my time, there's nobody else, it's me, and get about doing that. You have no idea. You say, well, do you have problems still? Absolutely. Do you have struggles? Absolutely. Do you have temptations and sin? Absolutely. But part of what keeps me out of trouble and my nose clean is I know that if I get out of bounds, I may lose this privilege. And that's terrifying because I got one life. You got one life. You got one run at this. And you say, oh, but I'm young. I'm in my 20s. I got time. You know what? You got nothing. You got today if you're lucky. And you say, well, you're, you're all stirred up too passionate about it. That's the whole point of the sermon. <laughs> Amen. Now keep reading with me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel? One of the highest compliments I ever get paid, say, oh, you know, all he's gonna do is talk about Jesus dying on the cross, being buried and raised from the dead, and he'll tell a joke and cry, and then we go home. You know what? If that's all you get out of this, it's working. Because there's plenty of places you go, you will never hear of his blood, you will never hear of his death, you will never hear of his resurrection anymore. And you got nothing without that. That is the power of God unto salvation. Philippians chapter one, we're almost done with these verses. Now I'm reading this next little bit here to give you a category for Paul. We just read one, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel or proclaim the gospel. Philippians chapter one, verse 19. 
For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's passion. To live, my only reason for being alive is Christ. And if I die, that's gain. That sums it all up. Now, let me tell you something. I think I'm way far from that. Are you far from that? We are passionate about everything in the world but Jesus himself. I'm busy. I got a life. You know what? I don't have time to be chasing all your Jesus stories. I got to go to a job. They expect me to be successful, to perform, to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm just telling you guys, I think we got this thing screwed up, turned around. You say, yeah, but if I'm successful in the world, it'll give me a platform. I'll be more effective to reach people for the gospel. If you're not doing it on the way up, you're probably not going to do it when you get there. Don't be telling me one day. Well, I hear all this. One day when I'm a millionaire, I'll give all this money to charity. You won't give jack. You can't give 10 on 100. You can't give 100 on 1,000. You can't give 1,000 whatever the rest of the math is, <laughs> on 10,000. You know, you think, oh, it'll be easy. Try making a million dollars on a deal and we got people around here who do it and then write a $100,000 check when all you got left is half a million. Think about it. You make a million, you write you a check to somebody else. You say, well, I always tithe the 10% thing. Oh, really? Make a million, end up with half a million, then write 100 out, and now you got 400,000 out of your million. That's going to get hard, unless you've been doing it along the way, and it's just like clockwork. Don't be thinking about, oh, down the road, I'll figure all this out. You don't figure it out today, every step of the way, it's not happening down there. You'll find some other passion to write that check to, something that you enjoy or that will get you glory. That's where it'll go. I believe I'll get my name on that building over there. That's what I'll do. Why don't you get Jesus' name on something for a change? Okay, read Revelation chapter six, and we are almost done. Revelation chapter six, listen to this. The seals are being opened, and you have to go read this to get the context, but verse nine, when he opened the fifth seal, now imagine John seeing this stuff, having no idea, he, it's gotta be a bizarre thing to try to even comprehend, and he's actually seeing into the future. He opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar, so there's some kind of altar in heaven, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held under the altar, souls, individuals. And the only way you get under the altar is what? They had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They would not back down the word of God and this testimony. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, were completed. He said, not everybody's here yet. There's more to come to be under this altar with you. You need to think about these things because it is life and death. This is not a game. They're literal people's lives at stake. We'll get back to Richard in a moment to close out today's talk. 
But first, I want to share something about our program. Our mission is actually very simple, to take the planet. So it's our prayer that these daily talks from Richard aren't something you only hear and enjoy, but that they inspire you to share with others. Together, we can do this. The message of the gospel is something everyone needs to hear, and that's why it's such a priority to us. So join us in this important mission. Call us at 855-6-RICHARD to say you're in. Or you can get on board with us through our website, richardellistalks.com. Well, here's Richard with some closing thoughts for us. Very quickly, that ties in with this. The last passion fruit is literally when Jesus, his sufferings, and even on the cross, we refer to that as his passion. The fruit of that passion, right here. We are the fruit of his passion. Because he had the power and the choice to say, I'll pass but instead he died. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He seated at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews talks about. You got a great example. Someone willing to die so that you might live. It might be time for us to be willing to die to ourselves so that someone else might live because we get our pride and our ego and all of us out of the way. Something interesting about the word passion. You pass the I on and get on to letting him live the way he needs to and wants to and can. This has been Richard Ellis Talks with Richard Ellis. There's only one reason we do this program, to take the planet with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's our message and our mission. And you have a vital part of doing that along with us. If you've been encouraged by these talks with Richard, be sure to share with someone about the change they've made in your life. And we'd love to hear your story as to how the talks have made a difference to you. Give us a call. We'd love to talk with you. 855-6-RICHARD. You can also reach us through our website, richardellistalks.com. And while you're there, check out all the fun and informative pages we put together for you, richardellistalks.com. While you're there, be sure to click on the Contribute tab at the top to send your generous gift. If the program is making a difference to you, your gift will make a big difference to us. Until next time, thanks so much for listening to Richard Ellis Talks. Richard Ellis Talks.